Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Well, in the words of uh, His Royal Badness, Prince, we are all gathered here together, dearly beloved, to celebrate this thing called life. But people celebrate that thing called life and getting through life lots of different ways. Three of the ways that we're going to look at today are called humanism, um, agnosticism, and and universalism. Universalism uh, is, you know, the closest thing to a real faith that we're going to talk about today. I actually was, as a boy, a universalist. Uh, I thought my father was either a humanist or maybe an agnostic. It turned out that he was really a heretic. He would enroll me in various faiths, uh, and then he would read up all year uh, on the faith, and then he would, he would show up one day a year and argue with whoever the pastor or minister was. Uh, and that actually happened at the Universalist Church that it's represented uh, on the show here today. So uh, right now, I want you to meet our three guests. Uh, let me tell you about them. Uh, Lynn DeRoche is in studio. He is the interim, interim minister at the Universalist Church on Fern Street in West Hartford. That is the church that I did attend for a number of years as a boy. Um, Chris Stedman is the executive director of the Yale Humanist Community, and uh, he is also here in studio with me. And then joining us from the NPR studios in New York City is Leslie Hazelton, the author of uh, Agnostic, a Spirited Manifesto. Uh, Leslie Hazelton will be speaking tonight to, in fact, uh, the organization and, or sort of under the umbrella of the organization uh, that Chris is uh, the head of. This is Yale and New Haven Humanism Week. Uh, you probably knew that already. They're going nuts down there uh, in New Haven just w- with all the humanizing. Uh, and so <laughs> <laughs> that the, it runs through Saturday. Leslie Hazelden will be speaking tonight at 7.30 p.m. at Yale. The talk is free and open to the public. I believe it's at Nine Hill House Avenue, right? That's where you, that's where that's going to be. So I guess I want what I want to do is maybe begin by trying to define terms uh, a little bit. Um, all of you, uh, your Venn diagram circles overlap in various ways, and, and then maybe there are little crescents here and there that that don't so much. So um, let's uh, begin. Um, let's begin with you, Chris. Uh, you know, this humanism is a word that I I freely acknowledge. I, I've never quite pinned down what mm. that means, and maybe it means something a little different uh, from humanist to humanist. What does it mean to you? So it's not a surprise to me that you haven't been able to pin down the definition of this word because as I was t- discussing before we started this conversation, there if you were to ask 10 humanists, what's humanism mean? You would get 10 very different answers. And I think there's a few reasons for that. I think one of it, one of the reasons is that as a community, we humanists haven't always done a very good job of uh, explaining to people what humanism means. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also think, like in any community, you're going to find diversity of thought. You're going to find people who approach their humanism differently. The sort of textbook definition of humanism, according to the American Humanist Association, is that it's a progressive philosophy of life that without supernaturalism or belief in God or divine agents, affirms our individual ability and responsibility to lead lives of personal fulfillment that also aspire to the greater good for all of humanity. 
In other words, uh, the sort of bumper sticker definition of humanism is that it's good without God. It's putting emphasis on the here and now, on reasoned experience as a sort of guide for where we get our moral uh, morals from. But I happen to think when you think about that bumper sticker definition of humanism that the good is a whole lot more important than the without God part. Um, in fact, when I was a humanist chaplain at Harvard, we were making T-shirts and people wanted to put good without God on there. And I asked, could we put good in really big letters and put without God in parentheses in smaller text at the end? And that's because to me, that's where the emphasis should be. It should be on the, living in the here and now. Um, it should be on trying to work out together alongside people who have very different beliefs than we do, including people who believe in God, what the good life looks like and how we can go about cultivating it together. And so you, our community in New Haven tries to keep the doors open as wide as we can. And we have a number of people, including many people who believe in God, who come to our programs, who are involved in our community, and who would probably call themselves humanist. So I just think that all of these labels are incredibly slippery and they they vary depending on who's using it. And um, I happen to be an atheist who's a humanist, but mm -hmm. I know others who are humanists who don't uh, aren't atheists. So you'll just you'll get a different answer depending on who you talk to. But I think it's interesting that your emphasis is interesting. You know, it's it's not an invitation to be a reprobate. Anyway, the good part is uh, the important part. Mm -hmm. uh, the notion that uh, I mean, I don't know. Can you get kicked out of humanism? Probably not. Right. <laughs> well, you know, we humanists are human. And so there are going to be disagreements between people. And, you know, all the all the things that every other group has struggled with, we will struggle with. But I think that our emphasis at the Yale humanist community anyway, is that there are so many good things about being a part of a community of uh, uh, accountability, a space where you can go and reflect and learn with other people, find support in times of crisis, uh, celebrate in times of joy, and that those things should be available to everyone, including the growing number of people who say that they're not religious, that they don't believe in God, and who don't feel like a religious space is where they want to be. So we're trying to build community, not just for Yale, although we do have a lot of programs that are student-oriented. We're also trying to build community for the broader New Haven community. We have Sunday gatherings that are open to the public that feature speakers, coffee, opportunities to connect. And we think that all of these things that are important about being in community with other people and having a space to reflect on what gives life meaning and purpose are things that should be um, available to everyone, as I said, whether they believe in God or not. So, um, uh, Linda Roche, um, Chris Dudman says you get uh, 10 humanists together, you might get 10 de definitions of humanism. You get 10 Unitarian Universalists together, I don't know, we might get like six or seven definitions. Or 11, maybe. Or 11 or 12, <laughs> but That's rabbis. There's a little saying about rabbis. You get three rabbis together, you get four opinions. Uh, anyway, yeah. Yeah. There's one uh, Christian theologian, uh, John Dominic Crossan, that said uh, the history of religion is about building community and working for justice. Mm -hmm. And I think most religion are about that. The rest of it is just uh, icing on, mm -hmm. on the cake. Or on the donut. Chris, or on the donut. Chris, Chris, Chris I was going to say, I brought donuts because I thought this was a bake-off. It is a bake-off. I may not believe in God, but I do believe in donuts <laughs> and sharing. 
<laughs> so, but I mean, so th- obviously we could, if we pick, if we decided to have sort of a new atheist come in here, Lynn, I mean, sort of the Richard Dawkins, uh, Chris Hitchens, uh, Sam Harris breed of new atheist, they would immediately dispute the de- definition that you just g- gave, right? I mean, one of the big arguments that the so-called, you know, new atheists of the apocalypse, uh, uh, what they, they, they say, no, there's this malarial swamp that breeds intolerance and violence. Well, if they would say there's no God, I would say, what God is? are you not affirming? Mm-hmm. And I would probably agree with most of them. You know, you have to have a definition to not believe in something. And in some ways, I think the uh, classic atheist be- uh, believes in a God that I don't believe in either. Hmm. As an atheist, I'm sitting over here going, hmm, maybe we should talk about this some more sometime. All right. Well, maybe we'll talk about it on the show. Um, let me just uh, add the third voice to the conversation. So, um, Leslie Hazelton, years is probably the hardest thing to define of all, and it really is probably the most bespoke uh, of the isms that we're talking about here. I mean, boy, every agnostic has probably got to be, you know, a thing unto him or herself. Well, the thing is, Colin, the last thing I want is to be defined. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, we're getting defined all over the place. We're getting defined in the opinion polls, right, as nuns. That are not N-U-N-S, yes. not the <laughs> sisters, right, but nuns as a negative, nothing, you know, religiously unaffiliated and so on. And the pile of assumptions behind this are just horrendous. It's the assumption that basically... You you have or you own a belief. I I call it the capitalist approach to belief. You know, sort of like uh, uh, spiritual haves and have-nots, and uh, this is an absurdly simplistic and reductive, dismayingly simplistic and reductive way to think about this whole vast and varied universe that we squish under the heading of religion, and it really is squished. You know, it's a kind of umbrella heading that's very very vague. And I think what we need here. We need, a, we need a whole new way of thinking. We need a whole new uh, language. Part of what I was trying to do with uh, when I wrote Agnostic, uh, uh, The Spirit of Manifesto, is that, for instance, you know, people keep on saying it's a defense of agnosticism. A, it's not a defense because I sure as hell am not feeling defensive. And B, I avoid the word agnosticism wherever I can. I stand very tall as an agnostic, but I would take the ism out of the word because, you know, the last thing we need is yet another ism, yet another pompously complete system of thought sort of demanding adherence to some kind of party line. I, I want to I want to explore. Right. I want to I want to 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 reach out and explore these these magnificent and ultimately unanswerable questions about you know, consciousness, infinity, whatever it is that we might or might not conceive of when we use what's basically the metaphysical shorthand of the word God. Uh, I sure as hell do not want to be defined. Do not try and put me on any flat line between belief and unbelief because I will just yell like crazy. <laughs> I, I won't do it right now. Okay, I don't, I'm having pity on the microphone. <laughs> Well, uh, Leslie Hazelden, I want to just pursue that a little bit more. I mean, I think you and I are interested in a lot of the same stuff. Uh, I am really interested in some of the things that you say about mathematics, yeah. physics, consciousness, all that stuff. Um, yeah. And I, I love I, your dad, by the way. I love that story about your dad. <laughs> he was a, I, Being a reprobate is great. Right. Well, you know, on the <laughs> other hand, with, with my father, I will say that when he was dying, this uh, chaplain, this Irish chaplain uh, showed oh, yeah. up uh, to, as part of hospice. And my mother said, oh, no, 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 he won't talk to you. Uh, and he just talked his way in there. 
uh, and they spent a lot of time talking, which that's when I realized he was actually a heretic uh, as opposed <laughs> to. Uh, and actually, he he said uh, he told me a story. He said a, a little joke. He said, you know, it's uh, it's like I was given last rights uh, to a fellow back in Ireland. And uh, I said, uh, Paddy, do you renounce Satan and all his works? And he said, Father, why make new enemies at a time like this? <laughs> um, so people, people do change as they go up to the brink. But what I was going to say, Leslie Hazelton, is yeah. I, I feel as though, you know, I can explore some of those questions within the context of religion, uh, and, and maybe even by attending a church every Sunday, which these days I do, um, it, it seems somewhat important to you to, to have ultimate freedom, and, and so you feel as though maybe even a universalist church like the, the one that Lynn uh, presides over is, a, is not the right place anyway for you to look at those things? Actually, not for me, no, not for me. I want to, yeah, okay, let me put it like this. Um, very often people of, people of faith, you know, Believers, uh, not some, not not all, not always, but some, uh, and in a very well-intentioned way, will try and reassure me that I'm really a seeker or a searcher after God or after you know, big T truth, you know, dangerous idea, big T truth, or some kind of esoteric kind of big K knowledge. And um, and they seem to regard me as kind of lost, you know, but I'm sure that Irish priest would have called me a lost soul, ach, the lost soul. Mm-hmm. But, you know... Uh, the nightmare for them, uh, well, I don't think it's a nightmare, but, you know, the problem there is that I actively enjoy being lost. I, it, it, many friends will come up with all kinds of excuses to go hiking with me because they'll say, hey, the trail's this way, Leslie, as they see me wandering off in another direction. Mm-hmm. And I'll say, no, but this way looks more interesting. And they say, well, what if we get lost? And I say, great. <laughs> because, you know, the fear of being lost is grounded in the negative. You know, like... Like when you lose your keys, right? Let's say you're looking for your keys and you're, you're searching high and low. And everywhere you look, you're only seeing one thing, and that's not keys. You're not seeing what's there. You're only seeing what's not there. And I want to see what's there. Right? I want to think about where I am, not where I imagine I'm going. So, Linda Roche, as I listen to that, uh, to what Leslie says, I- I'm thinking, well... Um, I don't mind too much getting lost in the woods, but I like to know there's a parking lot where my car is that I'll eventually get back to. <laughs> and, and in a way, you could argue that uh, not to make universalism into a parking lot, but uh, that universalism, is kind of, universalism could be like that, a place where you could go, you could ask questions, but you'd sort of know, you know, at the end of the day, if you need someplace to go back and, and, and sit down and, uh, and turn the heat on or something, <laughs> that you, you at least know where you're going back to. Well, yeah, but, uh, but our symbol isn't really a cross. It's more of a question mark. Mm-hmm. You know, it, people come into our, our churches, Unitarian Universalist churches, they are seekers. Mm-hmm. They come in with probably rejecting something of where they had come from and sort of working to find it within, within our framework. And our framework includes Buddhist thought. There's a lot of ex-Jews that left Judaism or Ex-Catholics that there's, less, less, there's no less such Catholic thing as an ex Catholic. as an ex Julian. <laughs> really. Well, I mean, or it's like no saying ex-Catholic. Catholic. No, you're practicing or not practicing Catholic. <laughs> yeah, to my mind, there's nobody more deeply Catholic than a lapsed Catholic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Do I want to explain that? Not really. Uh, think Graham Greene. Think Graham Greene, for instance. Um, sorry, I'm sorry, I interrupted. Yeah, you go ahead, finish your thought, Len. 
Well, I had finished there. Okay. So, um, so, but that that once again, you were you're both sort of back at that idea that Len had initially, which is that uh, if you're if nobody's more Catholic than an ex-Catholic, that means that there's something, and that would include my father too. Some you're still pushing back against something. You're still really interested in something, interested in enough to push back against it. But Chris, I think your argument would be just to go back to how you shifted a little in your seat when uh, when Len was first talking that <laughs> it is really possible to be an atheist without really acknowledging something that's there that you're rejecting. Yeah. Did you just call me shifty? No. <laughs> shifty atheist. Sh- um, shifting, I said. Shifting. Yeah. So, I mean, I need to I, – I, I feel like I need to say something about my atheism here, which is that I, I would like to believe anyway that it is a curious atheism, right? This idea that atheism is uh, sort of absolutist or rigid or incurious, I think – has a lot to do with who has spoken for atheism in our culture, who the sort of most visible and loudest voices of atheism tend to be. And I think that unfortunately, atheism often gets conflated with certainty or with um, a sort of sense that we have an absolute access, we have absolute access to the truth and that everyone else is wrong. And that is not how I understand my atheism. My atheism is a pure descriptive fact about me. I don't believe in a God. I live my life um, in a, such a way that I'm not um, really engaging with what I, anything that I would describe as God. I'm not praying. I'm not, um, you know, I'm not hoping for the influence of divine agents in my life. Uh, it's just me being an atheist means exactly what it, uh, what the definition of the word is. I don't believe in a God. Uh, I, but I'll throw a bit of a wrench into this conversation by saying I actually identify as an agnostic atheist in the sense that I think that the question of does God exist or not, and this is why so much of what Leslie is saying and so much of what she writes in her new book um, really resonated with me and, and really moved me is because I think that the question of does God exist is such a it's – it's like trying to take this incredibly huge and complicated and – difficult thing that we, you know, have to try to think about and put it into a sort of frame or a question that doesn't even make sense. For me, the question of does God exist or not is just not answerable because we, how could we know right now with the available information and tools that we have? I can't say definitively that there isn't a God. So I'm an agnostic in that sense, but I'm an atheist in the sense that I live my life without engaging with what I would call God. And I would say that my atheism uh, directs me to try to pay more attention to the world around me. I am a former Christian. Um, I was an evangelical Christian when I was younger. And when I was, um, the community that I was a part of spent a lot of time talking about the life that would come later and directed a lot of our attention um, toward that. And when I eventually left that community and started directing more of my attention to the world around me, it actually cultivated and engendered this greater curiosity and appreciation, which is why I love what Leslie was talking about in terms of getting lost and trying to see what's in front of you. Um, That, to me, very much uh, sort of resonates and is aligned with my atheism. So I think that, unfortunately, um, the, the stories that we've heard about what atheism means and the people who have spoken for atheism have presented a very narrow understanding of what it means. And I'd love to see that conversation cracked open yeah. a little more. 
And what yeah, do they use for authority? On H2D2. <laughs> <laughs> you know that I I call them H2D2, the four horsemen of the yeah. atheist apocalypse, right? And let's see, can I do it? H2D2, Harris, Hitchens, Dawkins, and Dennett. <laughs> That's right. Who have established this really sort of um, this really oddly dogmatic bullying tone, especially about agnostics. They 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 accuse agnostics and I and I quote of lacking the courage of their convictions, which only makes me ask, what exactly? conviction has to do with courage. It's actually a, a negative correlation. Um, and it's this conviction that so disturbs me. It's, it's it, to my mind, and, and, and not all atheists are like this, but atheism has gotten a really bad rap because of these guys, because they've gone so far overboard and sort of trying to establish atheism as a, uh, a, a valid uh, uh, alternative to theism, to belief in God and so on, that they've They've approached the whole thing. What, they, what, what they've done is um, they've adopted in a dogmatic tone that's very, very similar to that of the exact people they oppose, which is not religious people. It's the mad, weird, literal fundamentalists way out there on the fringe of, 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 of religion. And they're talking about the same God who's the old, you know, Old Testament God who sort of sends down thunderbolts and plagues and, 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 and a, a, a drought and all kinds of terrible things on you unless you obey him. And, of course, it's always him, right? And, um, uh, and it's... it's um, this, is, this is making... Whatever it is we talk about when we talk about God, this is making it very, very, very small. Bringing it all down to human size. Yeah, go ahead. Mm-hmm. Linda Roche, yeah. And, and Leslie, don't they use the authority of science as their only authority? Which, well, and in, yeah, and, and in, this, in, in this, they deeply, deeply misunderstand science. I mean, they pride themselves on being so logical and so on. But if you look, and I, you know, I've, I, I've explored this in Agnostic, in a spirited manifesto. They, if you look at what really good scientists say, the Nobel Prize winners and so on and so on, they say, uh, there's a wonderful quote from uh, Richard Feynman somewhere who won the Nobel Prize mm-hmm. in physics. He says, please, he says, please give me questions that can't be answered rather than answers that can't be questioned. Hmm. Isn't that beautiful? It's Rilke-like. Mm. Um, Rilke was great with the questions. Hey, before we go to break here, we're going to go break in just a second. But, um, Len, I feel like I still don't know. I mean, I, okay, I sort of do know because I attended the church. But if I'm a listener, I don't really still know. Like, you're a universalist. That means you're not a congregationalist, would be, which would be, you know, sort of about as liberal mainline flat-out Christian as you can get. But you're not an agnostic either. You're not a humanist. So tell us, what's the sweet spot that is universalism? Well, I think universalism and Unitarianism uh, look towards uh, different concepts. Unitarianism looks is more of the, the head and universalism is more of the heart. Where does emotion and, uh, and feeling come in in religion? Mm-hmm. And in many cases, our, uh, our definition of God may be love. And how do you define that in a Dawkins kind of way? Mm-hmm. I don't think he can define it. I don't think he even attempts to define it. But if, if I if somebody attends your church, all right, you have church services, right? So what? Explain what happens at your church service. Well, it's sort of like what I call a hymn sandwich, where we have uh, readings or meditations or responsive readings interspersed with music and hymns. Right, and the readings could be from. I've actually spoken from the the, the altar there, so uh, I mean, the readings could be like Martin Luther King or something. Right? It, you know, it can or, come from anything. Poetry is especially good for uh, examining the human condition. Yeah. Um, so a little Wordsworth, a little Rilke, a little yeah. 
Um, all right. Well, I, I just, a daffodil or two. A little what? A daffodil or two. Yeah. Well, sorry, you said Wordsworth. That was my instant association. <laughs> um, all right. We have, yellow daffodils. we have to take a quick break, quick break here. We have uh, what uh, Jonathan McNichol, our producer, calls a bake-off of the isms. We even have donuts in the studio. We'll be back with a, an agnostic, uh, a humanist, and a universalist. What if no one's watching? What if when we're dead, we are just dead? I mean, what? What if it's just us down here? What if God is just an idea? Someone put in your head. I mean, what? What if no one's watching? So uh, we're talking to a universalist and to a humanist and to an agnostic. Uh, let me tell you a little bit more about them, but I have to go to another part of my document. So joining us uh, here is Linda Roche. He is the interim minister at the Universalist Church of West Hartford, which is on Ford Street in West Hartford. Uh, and Chris Stedman is executive director of the Yale Humanist uh, Community. Are you considered the humanist chaplain of Yale as well, or is that was just your Harvard gig? Well, yeah, I used the word chaplain when I was at Harvard. Here I just... Um call myself the executive director of the Yale Humanist Community. Yeah. And Leslie Hazelton is the uh, author of uh, Agnostic, A Spirited Manifesto. Um, so oh, I have so many different questions, but Chris, I'll just start with you. Apropos of that, when you were a humanist chaplain of Harvard, yeah. were you ecumenical? I mean, did you like sit down and rap with the other chaplains? And, and <laughs> uh, I mean, and, and similarly now at Yale, are you part of any kind of ongoing dialogue with with Yale chaplains or, or anybody else? Who, yeah. You know. Might yeah. Be- so to me, I mean, it's fundamentally important to be in conversation with people in other communities, not just to keep our doors open wide and invite everyone in, but also to step out of our own community and be in conversation with others. And, and in fact, before I was a humanist chaplain or humanist community organizer, I was working for an interfaith organization in Chicago where my job was to help facilitate dialogue between people with different beliefs. And that's something that's really important to me. And I think it's something that's really important in the world today. And in terms of doing the kind of chaplaincy work that I do, I think it's very important to be able to work with anyone, even if they don't share my beliefs. When I was at Harvard, I was uh, one of a a large number of chaplains, but I would often meet with students who didn't identify as humanist, didn't identify as atheist or agnostic. And my job is not to uh, win souls for atheism. (laughs) My job is to help people as they're working to make sense of their lives and struggling with the kinds of questions about meaning and purpose or just with a, a sort of issue in their life that we all struggle with. And I think that as a you know as a humanist as someone who doesn't believe that there's an afterlife who thinks that this is all there is this and that we are all we have um I really think that it's that that couldn't be more important the work of trying to help one another get through this life together and in fact you know it puts to me a sense of urgency on doing that I can't just um hope that something you know that the person who's suffering now will um find peace later I have to try to do what I can, and I certainly fall short and don't do as good of a job as I could. Um, but that's why I, I, I. Do you ever pray like, "Lord, help me make a be- make me a better atheist"? I don't, <laughs> and you know, it's it's funny. I, I've, I have people serious. ask me, um, like, you know, I, I like to tell a story about when I was in college and I was working with a Muslim woman who um, was talking to me about how she was harassed for being Muslim and um, how, in those moments, she would. Uh, you know, pray or she would appeal to God um, to protect her or to comfort her. And I was telling her that because I'm queer, I've also been harassed. And she asked me, what do I do in those moments um, when I feel afraid? And when I've told that story, I leave out the part where I talk about what do I do when I feel afraid? And so I've inevitably had people ask me. In fact, I'm surprised by how often people ask me that. And the thing that I say is that when I'm 
really struggling, when I'm at my lowest of lows, the place that I turn for solace is both inward in reflecting on other times that I've struggled, times that I um, have gotten through something really difficult, and that gives me the knowledge that I can I can persevere because I've done it before, and I have cultivated skills and um, and and knowledge, and and some of it is from science, some of it is from experience, some of it is from my study of religion. I draw from lots of sources, but I also turn outward. I turn to my fellow human beings for help, um, and that's why community, I think, is so important, and that's why we're working so hard to build it in New Haven. Um, Leslie, I wonder if you feel a lot of kinship with Chris or a lot of difference with Chris, probably both. But I, I sense in you, you know, there's this, there's this great line by Suzuki, leave, he's talking about the mind, but leave the front door and rear door open, allow your thoughts to come and go, just don't serve them tea. You know, there's, the, there's this, that kind of notion anyway of, of the state that you want to be in is not unlike that, I, I think. The state that you want well, to be in is uh, one of permanent uh, irresolution, whereas he seems pretty resolute in a lot of the things that he says. Yeah, I, I think that's kind of amazing of you that you read me so perfectly over the airwaves between uh, New Haven and New York City, where I am right now before I come up there this evening. But um, yes, because I was just about to jump in and argue with the person who's hosting me tonight with Chris Edwin. <laughs> <laughs> please do, um, please. Yeah, yeah, I'm really you know, a graceless creature. Um, <laughs> because, you know, the, the phrase you used, Chris, was this is all there is. Mm. And I'm th- saying... This is huge, what there is. This is gigantic, what there is. We are finite creatures within infinity. We can actually conceive of infinity even as we know that it's basically mm-hmm. inconceivable, right? We, are, we live so large now compared to the lives we lived just 50 or 100 years ago. We can watch nebulas exploding in outer space and so on. And at the same time, we live as small and as intimately involved with each other as we ever did. And I I just, I love this. I love this largeness and smallness at the same Mm. time. I love these enduring mysteries, consciousness. The more neuroscientists know about the human brain, the more they admit that they haven't the faintest damn idea Mm. how consciousness works. Uh, You know, the, 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 the idea that science will explain everything it's really, I'm sorry, it's kind of pretty primitive, you know. Uh, it's true that for a long time sort of religion was used as the explanation of everything. Oh, God explains everything, right? Everything is because of God. Uh, and to believe that everything can be uh, explained by science is basically to think on more or less the same level. Again, it's belief, right? It's a kind of putting your faith in one particular thing. It's to be blind to how much we don't know. And as I say, Every good scientist, ask any good scientist, and the, the excitement for them isn't finding answers. It's realizing how much more there is that uh, is absolutely unknowable and probably, probably will remain so because we, as we expand how much we know, as we expand our sense of how large this universe is and that it's only this little universe, our little universe, and that there's, we know billions of them out there and probably an infinite number of them, and I find this all wonderfully mind-blowing as I find existence. Can I so, be... You know, sorry, well, before, sorry to interrupt yeah. there. Well, before you jump in, I want to get Lynn into this conversation, at least uh, apropos of something else that, that you said a few a little while ago. 
while ago, Chris, which is that, you know, Chris a while ago says, said that he knows some people who are, I'm paraphrasing, humanists who uh, who might also identify as theists to a certain degree, uh, just as well as he knows uh, humanists who, who certainly aren't. Would that be true in, in your congregation as you look out on those beaming faces on Sunday? Len? I, I think a lot of them are uh, humanists uh, with a theist bent. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I question Leslie seems to use atheism as a way of an understanding rather than a feeling. Mm-hmm. You know, I think good religion is about feeling. Good religion is about what are you doing rather than what are you thinking about. What, what, what grounds your existence is an action, not necessarily an idea. Yeah, I'm not sure everybody, every religious person would agree with that. Let me just ask you a real specific question, Len. Okay. How, how did you come to be who you are? I, I understood that your path kind of went through the military, which is not yeah, usually, I, uh, it's not, I, the, not the job track usually for a universalist uh, pastor. Well, I came uh, into the military during the Vietnam era, and uh, I had a choice between walking and flying, and I decided flying was a heck of a lot more fun than, than walking. And then I had a career, and I was all over the world, and and there was a Unitarian or a Universalist church wherever I was. So for me, being in the military is to be with people, Mm -hmm. whether I was commanding a squadron or or flying an airplane. Mm -hmm. You know, it's to be with people. And and I think that that's the essence of all good religion is how do you be with people? And whether, whether you be as a humanist or as a Christian or as a Jew, it's being with people. And experiencing those times in their lives when things aren't going great or things may be going great and you're celebrating with it. This is the sense of community that I think we can get in a humanist organization or you can get in a overtly religious organization. Why did you choose the overtly religious organization? Uh, Assuming you think universalism is that. Well, uh, (laughs) you know, we've been called organized religion, but I think that that's uh, not quite correct. We're not organized in any way, shape or form. So uh, it's it's because it, it Unitarianism and Universalism or Unitarian Universalism has a format or an organizational structure that allows me to get to people who question things, mm-hmm. who don't have all the answers, who who are seeking something between birth and death. And probably not a lot afterwards. So you probably have a lot of well, Leslie, that's called life. Yeah, and that sounds <laughs> that's very much like life. Leslie. That sounds very much like your book. I mean, it seems as though you could just as easily be sitting uh, there in his church on Sundays, except that's not something that you do. But if in fact this is seeking, no. it's about seeking. That's what you're doing, right? I, I don't need to seek. I'm alive. Yeah. <laughs> I don't need to seek life. We are alive. We are here, folks. Let's just make the most of it. Let's. Just be, first of all, amazed at it, and second, enjoy it. You know, we forget enjoyment. Enjoy being alive. Enjoy the sense of vitality. Enjoy just thinking about all these issues. Enjoy not being an intellectual couch potato and sitting back and saying, ah, I get it. I know it all. How boring that would be. Um, let me ask you this, Leslie. The, that, the sense that I'm getting from you is that you enjoy being in this state of flux, in this kind of dynamic state. So you wouldn't necessarily be happy if uh, tomorrow some quantum physicist uh, came out and said, look, we found God. He's right to the left of that electron there. He's waving. <laughs> look, Leslie, he's waving at you right now. That's God. Um, that's not necessarily even something that's going to make you happy. Or I mean, would you want to know that there was a God or that your soul uh, persevered after your death? Or would any of that make you happy? 
No, none of it. I think oh, all these, you know, these terms that we're talking in, they're all religious terms that have become so outmoded, right? The meaning of life, which, of course, assumes that there is such a thing. And, of course, there's only one, right? The universe, like, you know, ours is the only one that exists. The truth, like, you know, that implied uppercase T, you know, like it's totally unassailable. Um, when we think into oh, the soul, which implies that this is a, a thing, Mm. You know, that somehow is separates from your body and goes flying up to heaven <laughs> after you die or at the moment of your death and weighs exactly 21 grams. I mean, let's talk about what it is to live with soul. Mm. Let's, you know, it, 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 I, we need to find a completely different way. And as I say, this is what, I'd be try, this is what I was trying to do in, in the book, in Agnostic. Find a whole new way of reclaiming all these terms from the purchase of a, a, a kind of outmoded, very traditional, but I think it has served its purpose and it's now outmoded way of thinking. We need to explore further. We need to undefine. Mm. <laughs> we don't need any more definitions. Can I, yeah, go ahead. Can yeah. I go back yeah. to something yeah. Leslie said earlier? It's, and it's funny because, Leslie, hearing you talk about this now, I just feel like we have so much agreement, which is, why I kind of want to suggest or maybe ask if maybe earlier we weren't really disagreeing and maybe I just inarticulately expressed what I was trying to express. When I say this is all there is, I don't mean that in a sort of negative way. I mean it in the sense that I don't want more. I don't need more than this miraculous, huge world that we have and the universe right. that we live in and, and that there is so much here to try to learn about and explore that – I'm not interested in exploring what could be beyond that. Um, and I th I just think – and even that, it's hard to talk about it in that way because that suggests this kind of binary that – and I think this we, – we lapse into binaristic thinking in ways that exactly. limit us. Um, but, I, you know, I, that's I guess what I mean is that for me, even the distinction between secular and religious gets so complicated because – you see this growing number of people who say that they're not religious, but I have no idea what they mean by that. And the data can't tell you that. It can just tell you that they say they don't affiliate with these religions. And that's where, you know, this whole conversation about can you be a humanist and be a believer or not a believer? I'm, I consider myself a humanist in the sense that the American Humanist Association uh, defines it. But I also fall into the Philip Kitcher camp, uh, who wrote a really great book on secular humanism. And he says in his book that in his eyes, secular humanism is only secondarily secular. It's primarily humane. And that that's what our emphasis should be on, is on trying to be in this world with each other, focusing our attention on what is on, what's in front of us, who's around us, on and and make that the sort of focus of these conversations about where do we find our particular meaning in life? Where do we, um, you know, find spaces where we can be truly ourselves and be uh, in a space where we can find help during life's most difficult moments? Let me just grab one call here, then we're going to go to break, and then we're going to come back with our final segment here. By the way, our number here is 860-275-7266. This hour is flying by, which is usually a good sign. 860-275-7266. You know who I really want to hear from, by the way? Jonathan uh, McPants and I, when we were first explain, uh, working on this show, I said, 
let's find can we find an existentialist is anybody I, I but I, I think nobody identifies as an existentialist except Sartre and de Beauvoir I think he said Sartre said Camus wasn't even an existentialist I think you like read existentialist but nobody like has that on their card in their wallet or something but if you're an existentialist please do call in 860-275-7266 I feel like that could be like a French Jeff Foxworthy routine you might be an existentialist if you anyway here's David from Hartford hi you're on the air Hi, it seems to me that um, perhaps the Hebrew t- uh, Bible prophet Micah may be one of the earlier humanists, where he uh, says most famously that God does not expect us to worship with uh, sacrifice, investments, music, uh, ceremony, but what God values in worship is three things, to do justice, act mercifully, and to walk humbly with God. Um, and and those those kinds of sentiments or values really, I think, uh, cut across a whole bunch of religious and non-religious lines. It would be hard to get somebody to reject them anyway. Uh, we, we have to take a quick break here. Thanks for your call, David. Uh, we'll be back right after this. Something changed when I became of age. And all those things I thought were true, someday I'd break the big time. I should say, and I should have said, Kion Wolf is out today with a nasty cold. That's why you didn't hear any introduction today, and that's why you didn't just hear her uh, thank everybody. So I'll thank everybody. Uh, Bitsy Kaplan's on the board uh, taking Kion's place, and Greg Hill is tweeting for us, as usual, at WNPR Colin. You are invited to tweet right back at him, uh, at WNPR Colin. This show was produced by Jonathan McNichol. Uh, I think Ross Levin is in there on the phones, and I don't know if I've covered everybody. Uh, Katie Tularski is our executive producer, and I think this show was originally... Uh, hatched with her. Uh, this show is, uh, we, we called it a bake-off of the isms. I don't know if that gives it uh, due, um, well, see, reverence is not a word I could use. Uh, <laughs> Len, anyway, uh, Linda Roche is interim minister at a Universalist Church in West Hartford. Chris Stedman is an executive director uh, of the Yale Humanist Community, and um, Leslie Hazelden is the author of Agnostic, A Spirited Manifesto. So, Chris, uh, and we should say that tonight, Leslie Hazelden will be uh, in, with the Yale uh, Humanist Community. It's uh, Yale and New Haven Humanism Week. Uh, and uh, so Leslie will speak tonight at 7.30 at Yale. The, uh, the f- uh, talk is free and open to the public. It's at 9 Hill House Avenue at 7.30 uh, p.m. So, so Chris, uh, I'm going to drag myself into this uh, conversation again. And, <laughs> and although I got, I was already in trouble on Facebook earlier today, so this guy was saying, don't do a Christian show. No more Christian shows. So for the last <laughs> year, I'm, I'm 61. For the last year of my life, for the first year ever in my life, and for the last year of life, I've attended – uh, willingly and happily and eagerly a church. And it's uh, not only just a church, it's an evangelical Baptist church. It's super LGBTQ inclusive. We have gay pastors. We have uh, a very large gay, se- I, I don't know how many of our congregants are, are gay or lesbian, but but uh, so it's not your maybe your uh, image of an evangelical. I, I call us Quaptists because we do this kind of Quaker thing where we talk to each other in the middle of the, of the ceremonies. And I like it because it gives me time. Uh, it gives me a moment where I think about a lot of Leslie Hazelton things. You mm-hmm. know, my li- my life slows down a little bit. I'm sitting there. I'm talking to people, uh, and and it forces me out of 
just that mm-hmm. just that mm-hmm. thrust of living. And and I also feel as though to the point of your T-shirts, I'm a better person when I tried to hold myself to some of the standards that we wind up talking about. So it, it obviously is possible to be good without God. Do you think by being good with God, a person is being, I don't know, naive or misled or <laughs> oh yeah you went there oh gosh well, well first no, of all use we, your own word about it can yeah, we yeah. always refer to these things from now on as leslie hazelton things yeah. I, I motion that we do that yeah, sure um look first of all let me just jump over your question at the end sure. there for a second and say that what you're describing i think is so important and i think it's a, a universal human need this need to connect with other people and to take time out of our lives, especially now. I mean, I just think we've lost touch with boredom. I mean, I'm always looking at Twitter. I'm never in a space where I'm carving out a sort of still moment in my life to, to reflect and think deeply. It's so hard for me to do that. And so we have these Sunday gatherings in New Haven that are our humanist community gatherings. And that's exactly what we are trying to do, just without religion being a part of the conversation. So... We have thought-provoking speakers. We have something called the moment of connection where people discuss together what we're talking about. We're trying to create this kind of community experience where people have this chance to slow down and reflect. And this is, I think, so important because there's a really excellent book if you're interested in religion in the United States called uh, American Grace by Robert Putnam and David Campbell. In this book, they talk about the fact that in the U.S., religious Americans are much more civically engaged than the non-religious are. They vote more. They give more money to charity, both religious and secular. They're, in the words of Putnam and Campbell, better neighbors. They do more in their communities. But they also found that a non-believing spouse of a religious person who participated in their partner's religious community was just as civically engaged. And because of this, they suggest that the correlation between being a good neighbor and being religious has less to do with belief and more to do with belonging. It's about being a part of a community where you are taking time to intentionally reflect about these things. My mom goes to church because she says it makes her a better person afterwards. On Sunday afternoons after church, she's because she's been prompted to reflect, because she's had this opportunity to connect with other people who are thinking about these same questions together, she goes home and she does the things she might not otherwise do. She calls the distant relative who doesn't hear from people that often. She thinks about what she can do to make her community a better place. And that's what we're trying to build in New Haven. And um, last night, we I really felt this last night because we had the launch celebration for our Greenlight Project crowdfunding campaign. So our whole community got together. We had this celebration. And what we were kicking off was this initiative that we have been working on now for a year and a half, I think, where uh, in New Haven, every winter, there are these religious symbols that go on the town green in the winter, the menorah, the holiday tree, the uh, nativity scene. And we saw these things, and we felt that there was something missing, it's, even though many people— It's en- Len's big question mark, right? Right, yeah. exactly. So many people enjoy the light and the beauty that these symbols bring to the community, but they're particular, and there's nothing universal that represents our shared humanity, that uh, represents our community in all of its differences. And we felt like there w- this was an opportunity to offer a gift to the community because we have this community now, this humanist community, where we're reflecting on these things, we felt like we wanted to be good neighbors and we wanted to work to organize and create a work of art that was interactive, that would bring people together during the darkest and coldest season of the year and give them an opportunity to reflect on our ability as human beings to create light and to connect with one another and to help each other get through this life. And so now we're working on this project. We're running a crowdfunding campaign through May 11th to raise the funds to pay for this sculpture. 
And this is the kind of thing that I would love to see humanist communities doing more is this trying to reach out and contribute to our community and create an opportunity to reflect on these questions that are so important that we all think about, but that in the busyness of life, we might not necessarily give the attention that they deserve because we're so distracted all the time. And so this that project's just one example of the things that we're trying to do that I think get at what you're talking about, what you get out of being a part of a church. We're trying to offer that for people who say, you know what, church isn't for me. Maybe I don't believe in God. Maybe I don't identify as religious. Maybe, you know, I am just looking for something else. We're trying to offer that and give people a chance to be um, reflective together to connect with each other and to get through this life with one another and be good neighbors to each other. Okay, yeah. you Are go you ahead, attracting uh, millennials? Uh, <laughs> well, I so I am a millennial, so I guess I'm attracting myself. Um, but no, I mean, we're it's very important to me as we're organizing this community that it be multi-generational and we really want it to be something that, because I think that good communities are communities where as many different perspectives as possible are involved. And so we we do attract millennials, but I it's actually, you know, we're as we gr- are growing, the um, who is participating in our community is expanding. And that's, to me, something that's so exciting um, and something I hope we'll continue to see. We are almost out of time. L- Leslie Hazelden, I just wanted to say, you know, apropos of what Lynn does and what Chris is talking about, um, some people could see your quest as a rather lonely one. Do you feel lonely and unassisted? Uh, and uh, well, yeah, I'll just stop it there. Do I feel lonely? <laughs> no. <laughs> I think the lonely thing is being forced into that kind of binary position, like either believe or unbelieve, right? Which I, to me would make me feel like a computer. I mean, binary stuff is great for computers, right? That's how they work. It is absolutely atrocious. In fact, it is dangerous for human beings. So what I'm saying really is just just let go of that binary way of thinking. You don't have to decide, no matter what the opinion pollsters think when they call you up on the phone and so on, if you even bother to answer them. Uh, just be open, be larger, be undecided. You get undecided, that negative language. No, just be be open to possibility. I mean, I'd like to close with that famous line from Emily Dickinson, I dwell in possibility. It's All right, so let's, uh, let's actually let Bruce on the phone uh, take us out. We're almost out of time. Bruce from Berlin, can you make it fast? Yes, uh, Kurt Vonnegut's son, Mark, who was a doctor uh, and was uh, always in a state of depression. But he said, we're here to help each other get through this thing, whatever it is. Right. Well, on that on that lovely note, thank you very much to everybody who showed up today. Uh, And uh, what time are services on Sunday, Lynn? They're at 10 o'clock. Okay, 10 o'clock at the Universalist Church, uh, and I'll be out at Wisdom House that day, so I'll probably miss it. Uh, but thanks so much to Linda Roche from the Universalist Church in West Hartford, to Chris Stedman, Executive Director of the Yale Humanist Community, and to Leslie Hazelton, author of Agnostic, A Spirited Manifesto. Leslie Hazelton will speak tonight at Yale at 7.30 at 9 Hill House Avenue. Thanks to Jonathan McPants for executing this concept. How blessed are we Y'all must be crazy to put your faith in me. That's why I love mankind. You really need me. That's why I love mankind.